Last week we started a uh, series of studies on, we're going through the epistles of John, not the gospel, but just the epistle, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And last week it was an introductory session where we just talked about the context and some of the themes and that sort of thing. And tonight we're actually going to get started with our verse-by-verse study as we walk through the book, beginning with 1st John. A number of years ago, um, in preparation for a discussion period on a uh, uh, on a Christian radio program, an interviewer went to the streets of Philadelphia to ask people this question. He asked them, what is Christianity? And the answers were, were surprising. Some said that Christianity is the American way of life, and others called it an organization. Some said it was an ethic. One man even said that Christianity was a tool used by capitalists to repress the poor. And when, when the interviewer tried to help the people by asking, okay, and who is Jesus Christ? The answers were even more outlandish. Uh, he was, one person said he was the pure essence of energy. And another one said he was a good man. Another person said our leader. And, but there are many who just simply replied, I'm, I'm not sure, or I just don't know. The, the problem faced with the interviewer on the streets of Philadelphia were very similar to the problems faced by uh, the apostle John as he wrote to the people of his day. Although in John's case, those to whom he was writing were actually already Christians. In the early days of the growth and the expansion of the Christian church, there was a large measure of agreement, if not even unanimity, as to what the faith was. But in time, as various heretical movements began to appear within the church, the the initial agreement broke up in many places, and many normal Christians found themselves asking questions like, what is Christianity after all? Is is belief in Jesus Christ essential to the highest form of Christianity? Is is Christianity Christ? If not, what is? Or if Christ is essential to Christianity, then what precisely is one supposed to believe about him? And in the churches to which John was writing, these questions had grown out of a, a major schism caused by those whom we today would call Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. And they were, uh, which comes from the Greek word, uh, which just means knowledge or to know. And they they were intense and fundamental questions they asked. Who are we? What is the truth? And not only that, they also involved authority as well. They were saying, who is right? Is John right or are we right? And they were saying, we have more spiritual authority than John. We have greater knowledge. We have this mystical knowledge, and so you should listen to us. But here's the reality, and this is what we're gonna, some of what we're going to spend some time on tonight at the beginning of our study. Christianity stands or falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It succeeds or fails on whether or not a true and genuine incarnation, which is incarnation is just when God becomes flesh, it, it succeeds or fails in whether or not a true, genuine incarnation actually took place in space and in time. The options as to who Jesus is and what Jesus did can basically be reduced to four. And this is uh, kind of borrowed from C.S. Lewis. He could have been a liar. That is someone who simply was not who he claimed to be. And he knew he wasn't. So he would have been a liar or, or <coughs> excuse me, or he could have been a lunatic. Well, that's someone who thought he was somebody and but in fact he was not or he could have been a legend somebody who who was not only who was not who other people imagined later imagined him to be 
Or the final option is that he could be the Lord. And, and that is that he is who he said he is. And, and his birth, life, death, and resurrection prove that to be true. Well, in our, in our 21st century context, we, we constantly face confusion and distortions and inaccuracies and even outright denials of the Jesus revealed in the Bible. And here I want to say this, that if you, if you say you believe in Jesus, you, you have to believe in Jesus as he revealed himself, or you don't really believe in Jesus. You have to believe he is who he said he is. Otherwise, you don't really believe. You have an idea or a concept, and you want to assign that to Jesus, but if you believe in Jesus, then you're going to believe in the Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible. But we live in a time when there's such confusion and distortions, inaccuracies, as I said, even denials of Jesus. And, and, and this is nothing new. The Apostle John faced the same challenges in the first century as, as he penned First John to set the record straight. And he, he knew that it was absolutely essential to get the Jesus question right. And John gives us four keys that are scattered throughout the five chapters, four different purposes for writing that help us unlock this much beloved letter. In 1 John 1, 4, we're going to read tonight, it says that he, he wrote to promote full joy in the family of God. In chapter 2, verse 1, he wrote to prevent sin in the family of God. In chapter 2, verse 26, he says he wrote to protect from false teachers in the family of God. And in chapter 5, verse 13, he says that his purpose was to provide assurance of salvation for, for the family of God. And, and in this book, these uh, three important themes are linked to those four purposes. And the themes are, number one, right belief in Jesus. Number two, right obedience to God's commands. And number three, right love for one another. And these themes, as he presents them, they provide what I'll call avenues of assurance, roadways to bring us assurance, where I, whereby I can know that I'm a Christian, or I can know that I'm a child of God. I can know that I'm on my way to heaven. Not just guess, not just hope, but I can know it. See, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, we're not studying that, but he wrote the Gospel of John not very long before he wrote these epistles. And he wrote the Gospel of John uh, so that we might have eternal life. That's John 20, 31. He wrote it to show people who Jesus was so that they could have eternal life. But here, uh, the, the, the first John was written that we might know that we have eternal life. First John verses, uh, chapter one, verses one through four constitutes the introduction to this epistle. And John wants us to know and to know rightly this word of life, Jesus, who invaded space and time and who makes it possible for us to have fellowship and intimacy with the one true God. So let's begin reading in verse one. Let's read the first four verses. We'll come back to them and, and look at different, some of the different ideas that are here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our, with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The, word, the life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now in these verses, John draws attention to two important truths concerning 
this life, the, the life of Jesus, which is a life like no other. And the first truth he's trying to make, the point he's trying to make is that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. John's first letter to the churches opens by emphasizing Christ's eternal nature. The, 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 the Son, Jesus Christ, is that which was, he said, that which was from the beginning. And he says, is the eternal life which, which was with the Father. Jesus Christ, who is the Father's Son, has always eternally existed with the Father as God. There has never been a time when the Son was not. Never. He was before the beginning. He was in the beginning. He was from the beginning. Uh, we, we actually are given, I don't have this in my notes, but we're given three great uh, beginnings in Scripture. We have Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you have John chapter 1-1 where it says, in the beginning was the Word. And now we have here, we have, uh, I'm going to testify to you about what took place from the beginning. Now, he's obviously not talking about the beginning of creation or the beginning of Christ. Christ didn't have a beginning, but he's talking about when Christ came to this earth and started his ministry. That's the incarnation. So um, the, uh, this, this is what he, uh, John believed, that he was eternal, that he was before everything. He was in the beginning. He was from the beginning, all these things. But you know what? It's not just what John believed. That's also what Jesus taught about himself. Jesus himself boldly declared in John 8, 58, and this is one of my favorite verses that Jesus, where he declares who he is in, on this earth. He said this, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, was born, I am. Now, see, if you're just using normal grammar, you would say before Abraham was, I existed or something like that. But that's not what he, he chose those words very specifically and very carefully. And by saying I am, what he was doing, he was indicating that he is the God of Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when Moses was standing at the burning bush and he said, they're going to ask who you are. And when they say, what, who, what's the name of the God who sent you? And God said, just tell them I am, I, I am that I am. Tell them the I am sent you. And, and Jesus is using the same word as saying before Abraham was born. Now, Abraham has been dead by this point, uh, at this point in time for hundreds of years. But he says before he was even born, I am. In fact, they, 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 uh, the, the religious leaders in the, that moment knew exactly what he, that he was, he, it was clear to them he was claiming to be God, and they took up stones. They were going to kill him uh, on the spot because he was claiming to be equal with God. It, let me give you a couple more. John 10, 30, he said, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. It's a pretty bold statement. John 14, 9, he told Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So clearly, Jesus believed himself to be God, and John confessed the same. If you ever hear anybody, uh, you know, on, uh, there's a lot of them that will get online and they'll say things like, they'll say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. They don't know what they're talking about. They are not reading the scripture. They don't, they, they, are, they obviously are just taking that second hand because Jesus very clearly made the point, I am God. That's what he believed. That's what he taught about himself. And John confessed the same. This life is the life of of undiminished deity. He was no less God than he was before, but it was undiminished deity made flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. There, there never was a time when the Son was not, and there will, will never be a time when he will not be. He's eternal. But the second important truth 
to which John, John draws attention. And this is in response to some of the false teaching that was going on at the time was that not only was Jesus God, not only was He divine, but Jesus is human. And this is where the mystery begins to get uh, a little hard for us to wrap our heads around because John now as an apostle and, and literally a friend of Jesus who walked with Him, he begins to present a rigorous defense of the real and genuine humanity of the Son. And he, he speaks as one who, who was an eyewitness of all that Jesus said and de did. And so this is not hearsay. This is not secondhand information. This is John saying, let me tell you about what I saw, about what I know, about what I touched, about what I heard. And he, he, he presents this eyewitness account of the incarnation. And he says four things concerning the word of life, as it's mentioned he, he describes Jesus as the word of life, which it, it, interesting thing there is that in John the gospel, the word is used to refer to Jesus. And here it, it is also, but he's also, he, he ties it more closely to the word life in, in verses following that Jesus is life, not just the word, but he is life. So he, he says four things concerning the word of life. He said that he says, we heard him with our ears. He's talking about himself and the other apostles who walked with him on the face of this earth. Uh, and then he repeats that very same thing in verse 3 for emphasis. He also says, we saw him with our eyes. Now, I'm going I'm to take a little, bit on, a little bit of time on this one because of all of the sense words that John used in this preface, hear, see, look upon, touch, all these things. This one, to see, apparently is the most important to John personally because he repeats it in all of the first three verses. So the question is, why should this one be so important? The, the answer may be found in the fact that this is, this is the word used by John in the gospel that he wrote in the gospel of John to describe the moment of his own conversion where he put his faith and began to believe in Jesus for who he was. John chapter 20 tells us the story of all of the events of the morning of the resurrection, beginning with Mary's first arrival at the tomb and then continuing on with the race of Peter and John to the tomb. And, and it can, in this chapter, it contains three different words, three different Greek words that are translated see. Uh, and they all, and it culminates with the one that he uses here in first John. So Peter and John had been told by Mary and that the body of Jesus was missing. So they take off running and they ran to the tomb. And John, who was younger, he, he arrived first. And, uh, and, and here he writes in John ch chapter 20 that he stopped at the door of the tomb and he looked in as, as a result of which he saw, that's the word there, the liniment, linen bands which the body of Jesus had been wrapped. Uh, now the word for see there, or, or the word that's translated saw, is the most common Greek word for seeing. It just simply means he saw it, that the object had impressed itself on John's eyes. Now, from what is known of the circumstances, it, it may be that John couldn't see the linen clothes very well because he's standing outside in the light and, and they're back inside the tomb, back in the, in the shadows back there. And so he just saw something laying there. He could see it, but didn't really register completely with him. Well, in a few moments, Peter arrived and Peter was always much more forceful than John, so true to character, 
Peter did not stop at the door, he, but rather he pushed John aside and, and just rushed right on in. And the author tells us that at that point, that Peter now also saw the linen cloth, but he uses a different Greek word for the word saw than he used for the, when, when he says that, that John saw those. And this word is a word that means to behold with intelligence, to perceive, or to scrutinize. You're looking at it, trying to figure something out. Now, apparently, there was something about the grave clothes that caused Peter to puzzle over them. Well, first of all, they were, they were still there, for one thing. That's all, that's gonna, that alone is puzzling. Because, it, listen, think about it this way. If the body of Jesus had been moved, if somebody had come in there and taken his body, because at this point in time, Peter, he doesn't, he's not expecting Jesus to be alive again, even though Jesus taught him that over and over and over again. But, but if the body of Jesus had been moved, then all the linen cloths that Jesus had been wrapped, at, uh, wrapped in, you would expect them to be gone with the body, right? But there they are. And, and, and not only that, the, the bands are, were in order. They're just lying there just as if the body had been there, but there's no body there. And, and the, the flip side of that is if they had taken the body, but they had unwrapped the, the, the body for whatever inconceivable reason, then the cloths would have been scattered about. The spices that are wrapped in there would have been spilled. It would, have been, it would not have been nice and neat and tidy. But, and then finally, the disciples noticed that the, that the napkin that had been around his head was not with the other grave clothes, but it was folded up in a nice, neat little place uh, by itself. Need to have a seat, friend. Thank you. And, and so, so what, what would account for the presence? What would account for the presence, the arrangement of, the, of those, these grave clothes to be like this? Nothing but a resurrection in which the transformed body of Christ would have passed through the linen cloths, leaving them undisturbed, just the same way as Jesus, when the disciples were in a locked room, just walked through the doors, just suddenly appeared in there in the same way. And, and, and it's at this point that the significance of the grave clothes finally got through to John. For, for at this point in time, he says it says that he saw... Now, again, this is the third word that he used for the, that's translated see. But this time, the word that's used means to see with understanding. So he saw it, but it didn't mean anything. Then Peter saw it, and he was examining it, trying to figure out what's going on. And then when they realized what was going on, that the bedclothes were there, the body was there, and it didn't make any sense other than the possibility that Jesus was raised and he just came out of those clothes and they just stayed right there. And so now John sees it with understanding. He says, ah, I get it. Now I see. Now I really see. Now I understand. And it says that then he believed. And so, you know, it's this last word that John uses, this last word that's translated see, that he uses three times in this preface, preface to 1 John as, as, he, as he thinks and I can't. Th I think it could hardly be otherwise, as he thinks of his own experience. Th there, there was an intentional, intense, and continuous gazing at and, and contemplation of this man named Jesus for three years. He says we watched and observed his every move. move. Others might might doubt, but but he he at least had heard, scrutinized, and seen Jesus with that insight that actually led to belief. Then the, the final way, one is that he said, 
we touched him with our hands. And that is that he was a real flesh and blood human being. He was no ghost. He was no phantom. He was a real person. Now, I'm taking time with this because theologically, it is absolutely vital that we understand the eternal, the, excuse me, the essential nature of the doctrine of, of the incarnation. The, the, the biblical Jesus is no myth, no fairy tale, no fable. He is no ghost. He is no illusion. He is indeed the God who took on full humanity. As John said it in, in his gospel, the word became flesh. And we know then from what he's teaching and what the Bible says that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He's not half God and half man. He's not all God and no man. And he's not all man and no God. He, he, nor is he simply a man uh, uniquely in touch with the divine, as some people will say. He, nor is he just simply a great prophet or a great teacher. No, he is the God-man like no one else who, who has ever lived or ever will live. He has always been with the Father, and now at Bethlehem, he came to be with us. And, and this is uh, the stumbling block of incarnation, as John Piper puts it. He, he, he writes this. I want to read this to you. It's so powerful. Many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a, has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine of incarnation is true, every person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says we are all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little country in the Middle East says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When God becomes a man, Man ceases to be the measure of all things, and this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. That's why the incarnation is such a huge issue, and it becomes such a stumbling block for people in the world. What John called Jesus, I mentioned earlier, he called him the word of life. And in his gospel that John had written, uh, he, he said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And as the word, the, the, the son of God fully conveys and communicates God. That's kind of the part. One of the ideas behind the word is that a word can, can communicate an idea. It can communicate something. It conveys something. So what kind of word was this? Well, the the Greek term that's used there is logos. And if you ever heard that, that's just a Greek word that's translated word. And theologians and philosophers, both Jews and Greeks, use the term word in a variety of ways. In the, in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, the word 
was, uh, first of all, it was the agent of creation. You see that in Psalm 33, 6. But, you know, you can go back and read the first uh, uh, couple chapters of Genesis. And it says, that how were things created? It says, and God said, and then it was. So he created with, with the word. So, so the word to the G- Hebrew mind was an agent of creation. But it was also... In Hosea 1-2, we see that it was the source of God's message to His people through the prophets. So the prophets were speaking a word from God. And, and it's also seen in Psalm 119 as God's law. This is my word, the standard of holiness. And, now, and the Greeks used, the, used word or the word logos to refer to a person's thoughts or reason or to a person's speech expressing his or her thoughts. As a philosophical term, Logos was the rational principle governing the universe. And for both Jews and Greeks, the term Logos signified beginnings. So it makes a lot of sense that John would use this word and would apply this to Jesus. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ, the Logos, is from the beginning because He is God. And and it's a really good title for, for the Son who both created the universe with God, but he was the word and the spoken word created the the universe. But then he came to earth to be the perfect expression of God to humanity. He was the word revealing who God is. And so Jesus, the Logos, reveals God's mind to human beings. And Jesus, the Logos, is the image of the invisible God and the revealer of God and the reality of God. But but we're we're told that he's not just the word as... He's called that in the Gospel of John, but here he's called the Word of Life. And that that says something to us there, that that people can be physically alive but spiritually dead. Because why why do we need a Word of Life if we're already alive? It's because we can be physically alive but spiritually dead. Jesus, as the express image of God, gives both spiritual and eternal life to all believe. And you know why that is? Look at verse 2. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So the eternal life there is not a thing. It is a person. He says, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. He's talking about Jesus. What what that says to us then is Jesus not only came to give us life, which He did, but the reason He can do that is because Jesus is life. He is life. And, and the Greek word for life is zoe. You ever, met anybody, anybody, you ever met anybody named zoe? That's just a Greek word for life. That's what it means. And, and in the classical Greek, that just refers to life in general. So, you know, a plant would have zoe, uh, you know, an animal, whatever. But and there are a few examples of, of, of that meaning and the way that of it being used that way in the New Testament. But in almost all instances, the word in the New Testament is used to designate, designate divine eternal life or the life of God. And, and so this life resided in Christ. And John repeated the fact that he had seen this life up close. And he says that that, that eternal life had appeared to us. It literally means was revealed or was manifested to us. Um, and, and John's work during the many years since Jesus' ascension had been to testify and to proclaim 
that Jesus is the one who is eternal life. And he used that word, I don't know if you noticed, he used that word proclaim multiple times throughout this passage. And because Jesus is eternal life, those who trusted him also have eternal life. Because Jesus is eternal life, to have him in your life is to have eternal life. See, eternal life is not just something we hope to have one day. If we have Jesus, we have eternal life now because he is life. He is life. And he says the phrase that he uses, which was with the Father, that actually suggests that the word was face to face with the Father. And why, why is that significant? Well, because the way that word was used in the Greek expression, it indicates a personal relationship. It's about relationship. So what that does, it tells us, because we're getting ready to go into a, a portion where he's talking about fellowship and what he's saying here. Uh, and fellowship, we have kind of ruined that word, especially in the Assemblies of God, because fellowship for us means we get together and eat something. You know, that's what we mean. Uh, but it's so much deeper than that. But it has to do with relationship. And so the fellowship and the relationship we have is actually born out of the reality that there was already fellowship and relationship in the Godhead. And so by using this expression, John was saying that the word which is the Son and God the Father, enjoyed an intimate personal relationship from the beginning. But now I want to get into that part on, on fellowship. Verse 3, we proclaim to you that what, that what we have seen and heard, uh, excuse me, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So verse 3 again begins with the phrase, what we have seen and heard, as we noted earlier, seeing is highlighted in each of the first three verses. But what's interesting here is that we're now in verse 3, which I didn't say this earlier, but the first four verses are really one long Greek sentence. We split it up into about three or four English sentences to help it make sense to us, but it's one long sentence. And here we are, we're in verse 3 out of 4, almost to the end of this whole, this whole uh, section here. And it's just now the, the main verb of the prologue appears. And that main word in the structure of that Greek sentence is the word proclaim. That's the emphasis that John is giving. John says we cannot remain silent about this eternal life-giving word. What we have seen, heard, looked upon, and touched, we must share with others. And the, the impact that Jesus has on, on his followers, it just can't be put into words. They, they were radically changed and, and we, they really did, as it says in the, in the book of Acts in one place, they really did turn the world upside down. They literally changed the course of history. We, we mark our time based on his life. We're in the year 2023 AD, Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. We're, he has had such an impact. The, the impact of the life of Jesus, this this life like no, like no other compelled them to take him and his gospel to the nations. They simply believed that they must. They had no choice. What they had experienced in Jesus, they wanted others to experience too. And, and it said, we will testify and bear witness concerning Jesus Christ. And we will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's the question. To what end? To what end? Why? John says the reason he does that 
is so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that word fellowship because we think of it as a get together. Let's talk. Let's have a little fun together, whatever. But the Greek word translated fellowship is a word called koinonia. And it speaks of sharing in a common, in, 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 in common something, sharing in common something that is significant and important. It entails the joy and the oneness in a group of people who are in, or who are in accord regarding something that really matters. So because of that, you share common values and beliefs and goals. You love the same things. You pursue the same things. Uh, koinonia, it could be used to describe a shared labor, like, like uh, the, uh, such as the fishing of James, John, and Simon. Or, or it could be the common enjoyment of some gift or experience, like the grace of God, the blessing of the gospel, Holy Spirit. But the point is that Christian community is not some passing association of people who share common sympathies for a cause. It's not like, oh, well, we believe in the same things, and so let's get together. And, and it's, not, it's not like, you know, an academy where there's an intellectual consensus about God is discovered there. The Christian community is partnership in experience. It's the common living of people who have a shared experience of Jesus Christ. It's, it's Christ that we share. It's that experience that we have with Him, finding forgiveness in Him, finding joy in Him, finding hope in Him, finding life everlasting in Him. It's all the things that we find in Christ. He is that shared experience with us. And, and, and listen, this relationship with Jesus ties us together as Christians in greater ways than culture or race or socioeconomic status or political ideology. It, it ties us together in greater ways than any of them could ever possibly do. In fact, I, I believe this with my whole heart. We as Christians, we need, need to never forget that we have more in common with a Chinese Christian, with an African sister, and with a brother in South America than we do with a next door neighbor who looks just like us, who does not know Christ. I have seen that on trips you know, I've, I've, I've been to El Salvador a few times and I remember going down there and I speak very little Spanish. I know uh, as someone, we were joking around before service, I know how to ask where the bathroom is. That's one of the important questions you need to know if you go to a Spanish speaking uh, country. You got to know that. And, and so, but I, I know very little Spanish. And there was uh, a young man I met there on this trip. His name was Douglas. And we... We tried our best to communicate, and sometimes we'd have somebody who could translate, but, but we got to be very close. And, and, you know, you go into these places, we'd go into churches, and they'd be singing songs, and I don't even know what they're singing. But I'm standing there, and I'm worshiping the Lord, and there was something about, even though we had different cultures, and we came from different parts of the world, there was a closeness there. There was something that tied us together. Even though we couldn't even really communicate. Even though we, we had a hard time talking with him, we, we knew enough to joke a little bit with each other. And he called me Poppy, which was Grandpa, <laughs> which, you know, I wasn't as old as I am now at the time. And, and I, I, I forget the word now, but I, I used the word that, where I called him uh, little granddaughter. <laughs> so we, we had a lot of fun with it, you know, and that sort of thing. But, but there was something that tied us together. In spite of, we should have had nothing in common. 
because we had nothing in common except for Jesus. We both loved him and that tied us together. This is the idea of koinonia is that the fact that we all are part of the body of Christ and we all have experienced what it's like to come to know him, to surrender to him, to find salvation and forgiveness in him, that there's a bond there that develops with us in the body of Christ. There's, that's the koinonia. It ties us together, as I said, in greater ways than any other thing can possibly ever tie us together. And so then as Christians, why do we come to church? We, we, we have, I'm afraid in much of our modern world, we're losing the understanding of how important it is to gather together with the people of God. Because everybody wants to be, you know, like the Lone Ranger Christian. Like we, we live stream our services and, and we're happy to do that for people who can't come here. But, you know, anybody that says, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do church at home and I'm just going to watch it online or uh, I'll watch this preacher there. I'll watch that preacher there. They, they just are missing out. They don't understand what the Bible talks about here. The importance of this koinonia. This importance because we gather to talk about this experience. We gather to talk about what Christ is doing in our lives. We, we gather to talk about his lordship and how amazing he is and and then in that process, we urge each other to grow more deeply in that relationship with him. And through that process, we discover that we begin to build a life together unlike any shared life in the world. And there's so many Christians that are missing out on the depth of life together with other believers because they don't take part in this or they don't take it seriously. The truth is, we as believers, we, we desperately need each other. It's, this, it's in this koinonia, it's in this type of fellowship, this closeness, that, that we can draw close enough together to where when I need, if I'm starting to, to stray and I'm starting to have, do something wrong, whether it's a bad attitude or a bad action, that somebody who's close enough to me in this koinonia can come to me and say, hey, can we talk about this? It's in that, in that relationship that I can go to somebody who's starting to wander and starting to make some bad decisions and I can say, listen, you know I love you. You know I love you because of all the things we've been through, the way we've walked th through this life. You know I love you. I'm really worried about this. Can we talk about it? That cannot happen outside of this development of this kind of koinonia. You know, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 this is what it says. it says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's a, that's a great verse already. Let's consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Well, I'll say, first of all, outside the context of a deeper relationship, this koinonia that, that he's talking about here, it's going to be very hard for me to accept you spurring me on to anything. You know what I'm saying? We don't, we don't like to be spurred on. Because a spur, it, it pokes you, right? You know what a spur does, right? You know, it's not just like, oh, let's just go. It, this is like, poke me in the, in the rear end and say, come on, let's get moving. This is the kind of more the idea. But then he goes on and says, in, in, keep this in context. He said, we need, to, we need to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And he says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one, one another 
and all the more as you see the day approaching, as the return of Christ draws near, which I believe it is drawing nearer and nearer all the time. As the return of, of Christ draws near, we need each other all the more. We need each other all the more. I need you to spur me on. You need me and you need each other to spur you on to do what's right, to love and to good deeds. That only happens when we are committed to this get, coming together and developing and growing in this fellowship, this koinonia. But, but here's the, one of the great things, and this is maybe the key behind it. Christian community is not merely horizontal. It's not just you and me. John says that this fellowship is also with the Father and with the Son and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is not just the sort of a happy coincidence of a shared experience of God. You're like, oh, we both know Jesus. Oh, that's a great coincidence. Let's just share our private spiritual walks. That's not what it's about. It is living and experiencing the Father and the Son together as believers in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. See, here's the thing we need to understand. Christian fellowship, and you can, you can use this in, in a small scale or in a large, large scale. In other words, this is true if it's just me and one other person, but it's also true if it's me and a large group of other people. This is true in marriage. But Christian fellowship is triangular. You're like, what in the world are you talking about? Well, my life in fellowship with Christ, your life in fellowship with Christ, and my life in fellowship with yours in Christ. You know, I've told young couples in marriage counseling, premarital counseling primarily, you know, that if you really want to grow in intimacy with each other, the key is to both of you make it your goal to draw near to Christ. Because think of it this way, in a triangle, you have, you have God here, you're here, and the other person's down here. And what happens is a lot of people make a mistake because they try to draw closer together each, each other, to each other by merely moving horizontally and they leave Christ out of the picture. But here's the thing. If, I, if I'm here and you're here and we want to draw closer to each other and develop a deeper intimacy, if we both move toward Christ, what's happening to the both of us? We're both drawing nearer to each other at the same time. That's the, that's the key to this is that this koinonia that we have is not something that we develop or we make happen. It's us together in fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit, that as we draw nearer to God, it also draws us nearer to each other. That's the bond that he's talking about. And the, and the, the, the union I enjoy with Christ becomes the substance that binds the church together. And, and here's the part many of us have forgotten. When we pull ourselves out of fellowship with each other, because it's all tied together, what I'm doing is I'm also weakening my fellowship with God. I'm going I'm to move on to verse 4. The reason for writing this letter was so that the joy... Uh, so that joy would abound in the hearts of John and the other believers. He said in verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. Well, what is joy? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We just preached a message on it this past Sunday. 
We're going through a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we talked about joy. What, what is joy? Well, first of all, joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is based on our circumstances. In fact, the word happiness comes from an old English word that means happenings. That's where we get happiness from. It's happenings. It's what happens to us, and if it's good, it makes us happy. But joy goes way, way beyond present circumstances and recognizes the hope that we have in Christ beyond this life. Why can a believer have joy when bad things are happening? It's because my joy is not tied to my circumstances or to the happenings that are going on around me. My joy is tied to Christ. Therefore, if I'm in Christ, I have joy no matter what's going on around me. Joy is, is like a deep-seated peace that comes in knowing that, that God is in control, and it also comes in knowing that this life is not all there is. If everything in this life goes wrong for me, I can still have joy because I know there's something better coming. That my, I'm going to be with, with Jesus forever. I'm going to be in His presence forever. I'm going to, I, I'm going to, I have, and the Bible says in Psalm, it says in His presence, there is fullness of joy. And we talked about that Sunday. Fullness doesn't mean we think a full means I can't fit any more in. But it's, it, the word literally means that which satiates. So it means that, that, that it's a joy that completely satisfies everything I want in my life. This is the joy. And Jesus spoke about this kind of joy. He said in John 15, 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In John 16, he said, so with you. Now is your, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Asking you will receive and your joy will be complete. And then John 17, I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that you may have the full measure of my joy. Excuse me, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Here's the connection here. John's been talking about here about proclamation. I mentioned that he says it several times. Proclamation produces fellowship. As the, as the gospel is proclaimed, people come to know Christ, which produces the kind of fellowship that we're talking about, right? As people come to Christ, we now share this experience of, of coming to know Christ and walking with Him, knowing Him. Therefore, it begins to create this fellowship. And then fellowship creates joy. Fellowship with each other, fellowship with the Father, so that no matter what my circumstances are, my joy can always be growing. The, 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 as we proclaim our testimony of God's grace in our lives, people come into fellowship with God and with fellow believers, and that produces great joy in the life of the new believer as well in the lives of, of the body of Christ. He also says, we're also told that joy comes as a result of harmonious relationships among believers. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. You see, when we have this kind of fellowship where we are all pulling in the same direction, we all have the same value, same beliefs, same goals, same agenda, we're all, it's all about Jesus in our lives. Then what's going to happen is, as we are united together, our joy grows. But, but when we have division, when we lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing, 
it kills the joy. Have you ever been in a church with division? Kills the joy. Well, I'm going to close with this. Good news is for sharing. Isn't it? John considered this in his encounter with Christ to have been a joyful experience. It was the best thing that ever happened to him. And I, I would concur that with that in my life. Let me ask you this. What do we do when good things happen to us? Most of us, we cannot wait to tell somebody. Right? You either pick up the phone, you know, you call, and if you're like, uh, like we, we live away from our family, so you might be picking up the phone to call family member and say, man, you can't believe what happened. I got to tell you, this was, this is awesome. Or we, you know, if, if we run down to a neighbor's house, a close friend, or we send a text out to somebody or we put it on Facebook or whatever we do. But, 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 but something about good news practically demands that we share it. We can't wait to tell somebody when something great happened. And, and we hope that they love us enough that they actually rejoice with us, you know, instead of being jealous over it. You ever had that friend that's like, that can't be happy for you? It's just, you need, if, you, if you do, you need to find a better friend. That's all I can say. But, uh, well, if that's true about good things that happen in this life, how much more should we share this wonderful and marvelous truth that God sent Christ into the world to bring lost and empty and dead people back into life and back into a, a rich relationship with himself? No, no, notice, I mentioned earlier in the prologue of this epistle, notice the number of times and ways that John mentions his passion to communicate, to proclaim this good news, this gospel to other people. And I think the question for us, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, the question we have to ask ourselves is, have I lost my passion to tell the good news? Has it become old hat enough to me to where I just, I'm not so excited to tell other people anymore. I, I'm content with just kind of riding this thing out. Have I lost the passion to tell the good news? Well, my challenge for you, if that's the case, is first of all, dive back in. Dive back in in Koinonia, get in a small group, begin to, to develop this kind of relationship, begin to draw close to Christ, find your first love as, as the... The, John the Revelator said to the church, and uh, well, actually Jesus said, he was just trans, trans, John was just transcribing what Jesus said when he said, you've lost your first love. Go back and do the things you did at first. Go back and do those things. But then on the heels of that, begin to, begin to make it a decision. It, identify someone that you know who needs to hear about Christ. And everybody knows somebody. But, but don't just identify him. Then plan to share Christ's love with them, both in word and in action. Because one or the other is not enough. It has to be both. That's one of the things the Bible makes very clear. This is not about just preaching at people. And it's not just about living a good life in front of them. Because if you live a good life, a godly life in front of them, they're going to know something's different. But if you don't tell them that it's Jesus, they're not going to know what it is. They're just going to wonder. And if you just preach to them but don't live a life that matches your words, then you're just a hypocrite and you're going to be a stumbling block. You're not going to help anybody find Christ. But if you, if you tell people about the love of Christ and you live it out in your life in a very real, I'm not talking about being perfect because nobody's perfect, but, but when you do mess up, you, do, you own it. You confess it before God. You confess it before people as you need to. 
but but you you preach it, you say it, the truth to people, you tell them about the love of Christ, but then you live it out in your life, and suddenly your words have new power. And people know what's different about you. And that creates a spiritual hunger in their hearts. So I challenge you, find somebody who needs to hear about Jesus and tell them about him. Tell them about what he's done for you. Doesn't mean they're going to listen. They may laugh you in the face. They may never want to talk to you again. I don't know. But then again, they might listen. They might be the, the one who needed to hear it. They might become curious. They might one day say, hey, you know, do you think I could come to church with you sometime? It happened to me. What after I got saved, I started telling my friend about Christ and, and uh, I was trying to figure out a way to maybe invite him to church and he came to my house and he said, I'd, before I could even ask him, he said, would it be all right if I went to church with you tomorrow? It was on a Saturday. I'm like, I was sputtering around like, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't ready for this. I was like, uh, sure, I guess so. Yeah, that'd be all right. But, but that hunger is created when your words match your life and you tell them about this wonderful Jesus that you found or that he found you. Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, we thank you that we have fellowship with one another and we have fellowship with you. And that deep fellowship, as we grow in our relationship with you, that fellowship with each other grows deeper. And in that process, Lord, that creates such a deep and abiding joy in us that the world doesn't understand. But God, I pray you'd help us to be like John and say, I must proclaim this. I must make this Jesus known. This is my purpose in life. I may be employed somewhere else. I may have a job to do something else, but this is really my calling to make Jesus known, to let people know about his love and let him see his love in my life as well. So Lord, help us. And I pray God you'd lay somebody on our heart and give us the courage and the boldness to step out in faith and just tell them what you've done for us. And we leave that after that in your hands for you to work on them. And we give you praise for what you're going to do. We believe you're going to not only deepen our walk with you and with each other, but you're going to save new people. And our joy is just going to continue to grow. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.